welcome to Warpod, a podcast brought to you by SaferWorld, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at SaferWorld. And I'm Delina Goggio, Associate Fellow at Egmont and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. At the end of last year, US President Joe Biden hosted the Virtual Summit for Democracy, convening more than 100 countries to draw attention to rising authoritarianism and the erosion of democratic norms. The summit looked at three themes, defending against authoritarianism, addressing and fighting corruption and advancing respect for human rights. What's not to love? Well, what the summit didn't look at. That is, the United States' two-decade fixation on countering terrorism and violent extremist groups and how that might have led to a decrease in democracy. As we have explored in previous episodes, the US and many of its allies, such as the UK, have provided things like equipment, financial support and diplomatic cover to authoritarian regimes in the hope of fighting terrorism. And it looks like there's going to be more of the same. Last year, the Biden administration quietly delivered one of the first public insights into its developing counterterrorism policy. In a speech at the Atlantic Council on the 8th of September, Assistant to the President for Homeland Security, Liz Sherwood Randall, introduced the three core principles to guide counterterrorism strategies in the future change approaches to match changing threats, integrate counterterrorism efforts and other national security challenges, and invest in a broader set of tools to tackle emerging threats. And beyond this, democracy is critical to a multitude of national security issues, including geopolitical competition in which authoritarian regimes are offering competing models of governance, disinformation threats to democratic legitimacy globally, and transnational kleptocratic networks often attached to authoritarian regimes that seek to erode democracy from within. But did the summit do enough to start to grapple with these challenges? To understand what the Democracy Summit is, what issues it has looked at and what issues it needs to look at, we will be joined by Jason S. Calder, head of the Washington office of Safer World, Derek Mitchell, president of the National Democratic Institute, and Dr. Leslie Vinchamori, director of US and America's program and dean of the Queen Elizabeth II Academy for Leadership in International Affairs at Chatham House. I hope you enjoy the show. So last December, President Biden convened a summit of world democracies. The summit had several goals to encourage democracies still in progress or even backsliding, to recommit to the democratic path, to identify a set of commitments, anti-corruption, human rights, technology, and exposing disinformation. And all of this would demonstrate to citizens that democratic governments deliver. The democratic world is facing a daunting set of security challenges, erosion of the international rules-based order, geopolitical competition, multiple coups that are reshaping places like West Africa, and the proliferation of transnational armed groups. How can the summit be a launching point to counteract these threats to the alliance of democracies? Well, the summit was was meant, as you say, to be a launch, uh, a launching point. There's another summit uh, late in 2022. 
Um, and I, what it was supposed to do, at least at the first stage, was to demonstrate uh, confidence among democracies. As you stated, there's a sense of democracy on its heels and on, on the defensive. And I think the, the summit was meant to be to show solidarity, go on the offensive and to affirm confidently the common values, the, the norms, uh, and recommit to those norms and values within the international system that have underwritten international security and peace for decades. So that there really is a, a met, uh, an intention to affirm these values, to support media, free media, to support the marginalized youth and women, support civil society parliaments, and also recommit uh, each democracy itself, recommit to being stronger internally, as well as working together to support those in individual countries abroad and in the international system to support democratic values of transparency, openness, all of that. So really, I think it's a, an effective launch, but it really will have to see how it develops in terms of uh, programs and continued solidarity to push back uh, against the illiberal tide. Yeah, I may just jump in with a couple of quick points. I agree with what Derek has said. It's interesting that um, for President Biden to elevate threats to democracy to the level of a national security challenge could be a welcome opportunity in forcing the U.S. administration to reckon with some of the contradictions that we've always seen between so-called values issues and real politic. This, you know, obviously in terms of gets into realms of um, security assistance and arms sales and some of our, our allies in different regions of the world who are um, human rights abusers. That's always a really difficult thing and it's, it's, it's challenging to change those relationships overnight because obviously the security systems, regional security agreements and the like are not things that you easily change overnight, but this, this challenges the administration to try to reduce some of the inconsistencies and contradictions. I think the other thing that's interesting about this is that we've put our own, talking speaking as an American now, we've put our own democracy deficits on the table and acknowledging them in a, with a very high profile global audience. And I think this is something that is refreshing for those who might be tired of the American reliance on notions of American exceptionalism and the like in our foreign policy, but it's, it's obviously risky. Again, if you, don't if you don't live up to it, if you don't make progress, you know, you're falling short in front of the world. And so the Democracy Summit really challenges some fundamentals of the way that we've pursued our foreign policy interests. Thanks. That's really helpful to set the tone for the conversation. As you were speaking about the summit, it made me think of an episode of the Warpod that we had last month. And that was with Lisa Baran from Civics Ukraine office. And we discussed the way in which hybrid warfare in Ukraine was harming civilians and undermining democracy, for instance, by undermining the legitimacy of local security forces and officials. In this episode, both started to outline how Ukraine, the US and others could better respond to these threats. But I would love to get your thoughts on this. What needs to be done to offer an effective, comprehensive approach to hybrid warfare that puts protection of democracy at the centre? Derek, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, hybrid warfare, like all warfare, I suppose, but particularly hybrid warfare, its intention is to confuse and to divide and to demoralize and to undermine the will to resist. So it's very important, the most essential part of any defense, and this is true certainly in Ukraine, is the unity and civic trust within. Hybrid warfare is going to try through information ops and, and other ways, through 
um, little green men, try to confuse and divide the society. And so it's very important that transparency, that getting the facts out, that staying ahead of this game of, of, by community by community to holding together is very, very important to give people a sense that there is some solidarity, that they're holding together and that the enemy is not able to divide and conquer. And I think that's so far that's gone very well in that sense in Ukraine. The one thing that is unifying in Ukraine is this strong sense of democratic identity. NDI, the organization I'm president of, did a poll and did even a conference uh, recently where we discussed this with Ukrainians and the poll numbers were sky high in their commitment to democracy and the sense that this is what distinguishes us from Russia and the thing that makes us Ukrainian. So giving people a voice, uh, highlighting the tactics that are out there to divide, giving alternative methods of communication, connecting citizens to their government and making sure that civic relationship is strong is all very important. These are important elements of democracy, uh, but they're essential elements to fight a hybrid attack that we're seeing you know, from the Russians. During the Iraq and Afghanistan interventions, the West also advanced a democracy and nation building agenda. How is this current push to expand the world of democracy different? How has it been designed for success? Derek, would you like to go first? Well, I mean, Iraq and Afghanistan were unique cases. I think the democracy agenda has been ongoing for decades now, and it's, it's based on, first of all, a sense of humility that this stuff is hard and it takes time. Uh, I think those are certainly lessons from the days of Iraq and Afghanistan, as we've seen. I mean, Iraq is a special case, and it reminds me of what um, Secretary Albright, Madeleine Albright, who is chair of NDI, likes to say, she says that imposing democracy is an oxymoron. It's just a contradiction in terms. So I think the Iraq uh, example was a very bad one for the democracy agenda. People think that's what democracy promotion is about. When it has to come from within, it has to come from below. It can't be imposed. So I think you know Afghanistan as well shows that just how hard this is, but it also shows that you know you have to root out corruption. There has to be security. You must have security and a decent governance. And that democracy is not simply a matter of elections or a process or even a, you know, a form. It has to be a part of the culture. And this culture of democracy was embraced by these societies, but or particularly even Afghanistan, but it was let down by the leaders and by the atmosphere. And I think more broadly around the world, we have to remember that this stuff matters, that democracy uh, by all measures, brings better health, education, development, peace outcomes, but it has to deliver, and the people that represent the the citizens have to demonstrate that they're responsive and that they're operating with accountability. Otherwise, it won't work. I mean, this this stuff is hard, but it is worth the effort and is worth uh, supporting around the world because the alternative is, as we see, a shaping of norms and values that are illiberal and counter to common interest. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I, I think the only thing I might add, too, is that what I think the Biden administration's agenda is all about is more democracy strengthening and democracy solidarity rather than democracy, forceful democracy promotion or regime change. And I think, obviously, in the aftermath of 9-11, there was a very different mindset at the time. And one, one hopes that lessons have been learned. And I agree, Afghanistan is a different sort of a case than, than Iraq and does indeed prove just how, how challenging it is and how democracy promotion as part of 
a military strategy is, is most likely not going to work. I mean, we see in Afghanistan that the way that that engagement was started and some of the relationships we formed with, with warlords and human rights abusers, we ended up having to, for security purposes, and we ended up enshrining them in the state. And that ultimately uh, was probably cost the attempt at, at uh, democracy building in Afghanistan at the end of things because the contradictions just became too overwhelming. I think, you know, one area that one always has concern about is what are the lessons that have been learned? What lessons have politicians in the United States learned from this? I do think on Iraq, most will agree that it was a, it was a mistake, but I, I do hope that Democrats and Republicans have learned that there is a, a real difference between supporting democracies and uh, enforcing democracies, which, which is definitely a contradiction in terms. Thanks. And I think it fits nicely into the recent piece that you did in Foreign Policy, Jason, which I can put a link to in the show notes, where you and your co-author, Lauren Van Meter, who's also from the National Democracy Institute, you look at this shift away from the nation-building agenda to one of light footprint military interventions, where in attempting to keep a presence around the world to stop the spread of certain violent non-state armed groups, we've provided equipment, training, diplomatic cover, intelligence and huge amounts of money to potentially corrupt and abusive regimes. Do you get the sense that the Biden administration sees addressing these types of activities as part of its solution to declining democracy? And if it doesn't, should he? Yeah, I think this was probably one of the areas that conflict watchers were a little bit disappointed with the democracy summit is the lack of a real connection between uh, the impact of conflicts on democracy and, and fragility, but also in particular uh, conflicts that have this transnational violent group element to it, where we're employing counterterrorism and countering violent extremism responses. I mean, I think it's worth probably noting that it's not a coincidence that we had a democracy summit in the year of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And when you look at when the democratic recession started, most academics will point to around 2005. And that's after the global response to the 9-11 attacks. You had things like Guantanamo, the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, policies like surveillance, torture, rendition, detention, all sorts of compromises that the United States made of its own democratic values. And these had started to become entrenched uh, around the world and normalized. And so, and then in some cases, obviously used um, and abused by authoritarian states to pursue their own security agendas. So I think that's worth keeping in mind. Lauren and I took a look at the impact of CT and later CVE efforts with a focus on democracy in terms of democratic institutions, democratic rights and norms. And unfortunately, we saw a pretty clear link there. Of course, we know really well that authoritarian states use terrorism as a pretext to silence critics, jail their opponents, crack down on journalists, civil society activists, and otherwise shrink uh, civic and humanitarian space. But we're also seeing uh, authoritarian leaders within otherwise democratic states use some of these same tactics. We're also seeing uh, the way in which these counterterrorism responses are, are not conflict sensitive in the sense that they focus so predominantly on 
the threat, and it's a legitimate threat to security of, of some of these violence group, violent groups and the spread of these violent groups, but it doesn't take cognizance of the, the governance and right, human rights underpinnings of a lot of the conflicts and grievances that these groups support. And so if the response by the international community and our partners is not adequately sensitive to those governance dynamics, you actually might end up playing into existing internal conflicts. And that's what we've seen in a number of cases. And you see in West Africa, where in Burkina Faso, the counterterrorism response has involved sort of this full-throated effort by the government that's in a sense targeting an ethnic minority and associating an ethnic minority with the insurgency. And then as a result of that, as, as Derek pointed out before, it ends up dividing a society that really needs to, to come together in response to a threat. Another big part of this is that you get the empowering of security sector institutions and military actors at the expense of civilian, fragile civilian democratic institutions. And you see this in a, in a whole host of different ways. You see swelling military budgets at the expense of public services, and that increases the frustration of, of people who are not having their, their needs met. You're not having adequate democratic oversight of the security forces in these, in these situations, and we're not simultaneously strengthening the democracy aspects that are needed during a, a conflict. And we've seen as a result some of these coups all across West Africa. Warpod from Safer World. So I think a lot of the contradictions around the democracy strategy and the counterterrorism strategy, which you've just laid out, I can imagine there's many analysts within the Biden administration that are listening to that and saying, yeah, we know that, like this isn't anything new. The, there's always trade-offs between different approaches. Derek, you were an ambassador and you worked at the Department for Defence. I would love to hear what you think about these contradictions. Like, are they insurmountable or are are surmounting them central to the US's approach? Well, I think they are surmountable, absolutely surmountable. And I, I wish that the, the the Pentagon others would be listening to to Jason and reading what Jason and my colleague Lauren wrote about, about the centrality of governance for peace. You know, I was at a dinner. Uh, they, were, they asked many of us who had worked in the Pentagon, what is the international or the non-traditional security challenge you think that is being neglected the most? And I thought I was going to stand up and be edgy and say, you know, democracy and governance. The first person was a lieutenant general from the U.S. Army, head of the counterterrorism center. And he said, it's governance. So if we don't get this right, the good governance, democratic governance, then we will have no chance to build a more secure world and to fight terrorism and the rest. And I asked him afterwards if that was how many people like him were there in the Pentagon who thought like that. And he smiled and said, not enough, very few. I think we have to understand this issue is not an idealistic issue. Yes, there's idealism to democracy and the values, but it is very much a practical realist issue. That democracy is not some kind of ideology. It is very practical. It works when you listen to citizens, you give them a voice, when you treat them with respect, when there's transparent and accountable governance that is responsive to people and that is inclusive, then people are more likely to work within a system rather than go outside that system or take things to another level and create insecurity. There needs to be much more understanding in the US government and around the world 
of how to integrate this democracy support agenda into the toolkit. There's always going to be a push and pull in foreign policy of trade-offs, but this has to be one of those that we see as an essential part of international security and development. And frankly, I don't see it yet, even within many in the US government. I see it in President Biden, I see it in Tony Blinken, but then actually getting it into the bureaucracy and getting it understood is a very important core strategic priority when it's being under attack by the illiberals, to me is really essential. And I think that's what we're trying to get here and through this podcast, I hope, which is the essential connection between democratic governance and security. I'd be interested to hear now from you, Leslie, around how much we are seeing democracy and its maintenance as a practical issue versus idealistic issue, particularly with the rise of authoritarian solidarity from states like China and Russia, and in the last few days, an increasingly confrontational action from Russia in Ukraine. What should the US and others be doing about this? Can we consider threats to democracy and can we counter them while still strengthening our democratic institutions and seeing the need for democracy as not superfluous but central to our strategy? I think the current US administration um, does look at the question of democracy through a very practical lens, which isn't to say that there isn't also a deep commitment to the value of democracy. Uh, but if you look at some of the steps that are being taken, whether it's working with the Quad to infuse liberal values into questions of democracy, surveillance technologies, even how you distribute you know, a, a vaccination in the region, that's a very practical way of infusing what are essentially democratic values, a commitment to open societies into um, the kinds of measures that affect how people live their daily lives. So I think that there, there is a clear sense that democracy has to be something that is practiced and that's um, created in a sustainable way, but in a, you know, in an everyday sort of meaningful way. And certainly that's the case domestically within the US with the struggle to push for operational decisions on the ground, how you conduct elections. Um, who can vote. I mean, the, the details are really where the rubber hits the road when it comes to the, the big question of democracy. But of course, when it's framed, it, it sounds like it's sort of an ideological contest between Putin and President Xi, Erdogan on the one hand, and, and you know, the Western democracies on the other. But I, I do think that the policy is, has continued to get very granular. And I think that if I can jump in, I think that the way to address the authoritarian solidarity is with democratic solidarity. Uh, and that is what you're seeing with the summit. Very important that the democracies together work on uh, what those norms, as, as just stated by Leslie, that what are the norms, values, and standards of the international system that will guide us in the 21st century? Um, after the Cold War, even before the Cold War, we had established a certain system with norms and, and, and values, and it underwrote a remarkable level of, of development globally. And now you're seeing that under challenge. And the liberals are very much interested only in themselves, uh, only in their narrow self-interest, not in the common interest. Uh, and I think it's up to the democratic states to then push back and affirm their own vision in a very confident and positive way. And I think what the liberals are doing, and they're sort of woken us, us up to the challenge, that steadily they're getting into these institutions and changing these rules uh, and very openly so even the russians and chinese come out with a statement that redefines democracy 
And I think um, we can laugh that off. It does seem to be a backhanded compliment that they even use the term democracy and want to be considered democracies. But I think we also have to be very thoughtful about defining our terms, being precise about what we mean by democracy. Don't let them redefine it and then show why democracy matters. So the solidarity is very important. Yeah, just maybe one one final thought on this is that I agree with with both points, and I think Le- Leslie is right to emphasize sort of the practicality element of this. There are a lot of different venues and spaces in which you can you can emphasize the importance of democratic values and norms and institutions, and I, I think that's important, especially during a period of great power rivalry, because it can be unconstructive to fall into the trap of elevating democracy promotion into sort of an ideological contestation. That then makes some of your allies nervous of exactly what they're getting pulled into. So it's a tricky balance to strike. You know, you will have to face down authoritarian states when they're threatening the sovereignty of countries and the like. But in other other parts of the world where that contestation isn't so direct, what's probably important is finding ways to support democracy in, in very practical ways, for sure. So thanks. That's really helpful. And it's also, I mean, a big focus of the Democracy Summit was to get democracies to look inwardly and to understand how we can get our own houses in order. I'm interested to know how effectively the US is doing this already and whether it is essential for the US to get its own house in order domestically if it is to achieve its democracy agenda internationally. Leslie, can we go to you first? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it's it's essential and, and perhaps the, the most important reason is because the the symbolism of US democracy has always been absolutely core to its power, to its influence, to attracting other people and, and other states to, to wanting to, in a sense, be like America. And that is it's so caught up in having a sense that democracy works for Americans. And remember, very closely linked to that is a sense that democracy delivers economically. And I think right now there's a sense that too many Americans are being left out of the the economic success of the country, that it works in terms of unity and 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 the divides that are so clear across the United States are are very visible overseas. And I think that it hinders and and it undercuts uh, America's efforts to promote democracy beyond its borders, even in in concrete ways that aren't about you know military intervention. And I'm not persuaded that there's a sense for those of us who are, again, looking at America's democracy from beyond its borders, that the current administration or really that any administration right now is able to effectively tackle the problem. People look back at the Republican Party, they don't understand why it's gone so badly wrong. They're very persuaded that Donald Trump might get reelected. And they see these very different narratives coming out on on singular public policy problems and, and can't understand why the the polarization in the US, why the very different narratives and interpretations of of the basic facts on any given issue area are are so radically different. So I I think, you know, it's clear that that people are trying, but there's but there's very seemingly little sign of success in terms of repairing some of the the most fundamental problems of democracy in the US. I completely agree with that. I think the American model is really essential. Uh, When you look around the world, even if there are different models of democracy and not everyone, you know, we're not about exporting America. There are just infinite varieties of democracy. But it does matter to folks if there is some kind of norm and America's power 
economic power and political power was always very attractive and made folks think, well, in order to get that kind of success, it looks like democracy works. And we've always been working on our democracy. We've never been perfect. But our work, you know, to make ourselves better, a more perfect union every day, or at least making progress and going forward was always important. Um, let me say two other things, though. First of all, I think we've always had to act with humility. And the fact that we are struggling with, with this can also make us uh, a good partner with others because we're not lecturing other countries about how hard democracy is or how much every generation has to fight for democracy. We can make the case, as I did when I was ambassador, to say, look on TV and look how hard this is. You're going to have to fight for this. This is not easy and that we still have racial problems, but you can do it better than we can. You can learn the lessons from us and you can be better and make yourselves stronger by learning from the US if we handle it in that humble way, which I think we are these days. But secondly, I would also warn some people say, and Leslie certainly did not say this, and I, I, I think that's right, which is, well, America shouldn't be going around talking about democracy until it gets its house in order. That I would very much challenge. That countries around the world are really desperate, eager to get uh, assistance from the United States, to work with other countries, to learn lessons from others, to work on their own democracies. They're not doing it because of the United States. And they're not sitting around waiting for the United States to get it right in order to make their democracy stronger. They're recognizing the value of democracy for their own countries. So we should not use the fact that America is not at its best, never been perfect, but certainly not close to its best these days, to stop our support for democracy and our movement to build democratic solidarity around the world, as long as we do it with humility and that we do work on our own democracy in the process. Yeah, if I can just jump in on that. I mean, I, I agree that, you know, when you when you look at rising authoritarianism in, in the United States, polarization, truth, how how challenging those things are, it's really important to show how we're struggling with that. Another dimension of making our democracy real is the whole struggle for racial justice, which I think, you know, again, is one of those that like it or not, it's on display for the entire world to see. And we take sometimes one step forward and two steps back, but we keep trying. And that's critically important. What is actually exciting and sort of maybe a little bit below the radar for a lot of the world is just what's happening on that front locally in the United States. You have all sorts of attempts at truth and reconciliation, at grappling with the issue of reparations. And all of that fits into the idea of making ours a more inclusive democracy. And I think, you know, that's part of the struggle and it the symbolism of it is critically important. I know the national level animosity and tension and divisions get gets most of the attention. And obviously tragedies like George Floyd and, and, and others, but there's also a lot happening at a lot of different levels in the United States. We're such an enormous country, an enormous experiment in democracy. And I think it simply makes us stronger and makes our foreign policy stronger if we're, if we're open about this. And that is the kind of guidance, thankfully, that Secretary of State Blinken has given to diplomats on this issue is to come at it from a perspective of, of humility and acknowledge our shortcomings. Thanks very much.
Throughout this conversation, you've all mentioned a number of challenges facing the implementation of a democracy agenda and and doing things with the summit, substantive things with the summit. I guess one of the things that has come out, and I want to make sure that we we explore it fully, is that you've also offered a number of solutions, whether that's humility about what we can achieve or a clarity around the priorities that that we have, whether it's counter-terrorism or democracy. So to end the episode, I would like to go around everyone and ask, what do you think the Biden administration needs to do to address the threats of democracy, be they international or emanating from the US's own domestic or foreign policy? Leslie, can I go to you first? I think certainly, again, from my perch in London, that the number one most important thing is that the US demonstrates that it can conduct free and fair elections that will be contested to the extent that they're contested, it's done uh, legally through through existing institutions, that there won't be extensive violence, that if there is, that there will be an appropriate response. People are deeply fearful that America's democracy hangs in the balance. They're very concerned about the midterms, but they're especially concerned about the next presidential election. Interestingly, the Ukraine crisis has brought the West together. It's creating a degree of unity. But really, if you watch what was happening up until this moment, Europeans were talking about the need for, they returned to the conversation about the need for strategic autonomy. And so much of that was wrapped up in the fear that America's democracy was imploding, that there would be violence, that there would be return, if not to Donald Trump, then to a form of Trumpism that simply wouldn't work for the transatlantic partnership. So I think, you know, the the world, certainly the democratic world is looking to America and hoping and praying that it will come through this moment. And, you know, I, I appreciate so much what's been said about the fact that there are so many good things going on in the US, but I have to say they're not visible. Uh, what, what unfortunately most people watch the United States uh, through the lens of the media and the media picks up on the moments of drama they don't pick up on the fact that, you know, down in Georgia, they're actually conducting an investigation and looking at the president's illegitimate and illegal behaviors intended to block, you know, the, the outcomes of the 2020 presidential elections. They just noticed that he did it. Um, so they're going to be looking for that headline. And I do think when it comes to supporting democracy, promoting democracy, people just want to see that America itself will pull through on this dimension. I agree with that. Completely. I think that's the foundation, as we've discussed, that we have to get it right at home uh, to demonstrate the credibility, some credibility to to talk about it abroad and the American model matters. But also, I would say that um, you know the Biden administration can do more. They've done a lot to talk about democracy. The rhetoric is very good. I think they need to do more to integrate the democracy agenda, as stated, in the very practical ways within the U.S. government, whether it's Department of Defense or Commerce. Uh, USAID is thinking about how to, you know, how to embed the democratic values in the work that they, every, everything they do. Again, very practical way of thinking about embedding democracy, not just through an election, but in, in the mindsets and the daily activities, interactions among citizens and the relationship between citizens and their government. That's what makes democracy not a single event or an election. So doing more to integrate that type of activity into everything the U.S. government does to support those types of values is very, very important and make it make it a core element. If you were to tell someone that one critical factor is essential for better health, development, educational, and peace outcomes, 
you would think people would pay attention and say, well, we ought to do that. And this is that, democratic governance is that. The final thing I'll say that I think they need, I would recommend, as I mentioned a bit earlier, is defining our terms. What we're missing from last year, we sort of assume everyone knows what democracy is. And I think we should be very precise about what a democratic norm is and democratic values are in defining it and then building that international, galvanizing international support. So it's not great power competition. It's not the US versus China or the US versus China and Russia. It's not a defensive or a bilateral or Cold War idea or an ideology. It is the world's free societies, the billions of people around the world and what they want versus the corrupt illiberals and what they're seeking. And to bring that out into the open and make a strong case in partnership with others around the world. And I think the next summit needs to not just be a US thing. We need to be co-sponsoring this with other countries to show that this is a universal value, not simply a Western value, and that it is essential for the world we want for the 21st century. Yeah, I think coming at this from a peace building perspective, what I would really hope to see sort of during this year of action following the Democracy Summit and more broadly is an acknowledgement first of the relationship between our approaches to conflict, particularly those around counterterrorism and the decline of democracy. It's, it's only then that we can start developing an appropriate response when you recognize sort of the linkages, what we're doing wrong. My dream would be to see this acknowledged in President Biden's national security strategy or in the counterterrorism review, which still hasn't been released. It's at that point that you can start shaping a response with the various tools at the administration's disposal. I think if that happened, you'd start looking at the democracy effects of conflict and security policy in the context of USAID's country cooperation strategies, in terms of our public diplomacy as well, and in terms of our security assistance. I think you'd see an increase in democracy and peace assistance. You know, look, in some of these globally, we're putting, you know, 20 to $30 billion a year into uh, security assistance. And, you know, the recent announcement after the, the summit of a plussed up democracy assistance agenda comes to about a half a billion additional. And so it's just, we're just not getting the balance right, I think, in terms of our assistance. The Global Fragility Act could provide us a fresh opportunity to get the balance right. I think the administration would also have to take a hard look at how counterterrorism is being manipulated by authoritarian states at the United Nations uh, as well. But it's going to take some hard decisions either way on reducing dependence on military and security tools that we've become very accustomed to over the last 20 years and really investing in the notion that it is long-term governance and rights and democracy that need to be strengthened in order to make for less fragile, more peaceful societies. Thank you, Leslie, Derek and Jason. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Until next time, from me, Abigail Watson. And me, Delina Gojo. Goodbye. Warpod from Safer World. You can listen to all previous episodes and catch the latest releases every month wherever you get your podcasts by searching for and following Warpod. And to find out more about our work at Safer World, please visit saferworld.org.uk.